All right, Psalm 147 is where we pick up this evening, and as we said last time, Psalm 146 through Psalm 150, these remaining five psalms in the book of Psalms are what are often referred to as Hallel Psalms, and the reason for that, of course, is you notice the beginning of the psalm and the end of each one of these psalms starts and ends, like bookends, the statement, praise the Lord. And that statement, praise the Lord, in the Hebrew, it's one word. It's the term hallelujah, a universal term of praise. And again, it's a, basically a compound word, which is rendered in the English, praise the Lord. So these are Hallel Psalms or praise Psalms, the hallelujah Psalms, and certainly a very fitting end to the book of Psalms because they really put that focus upon the importance of praising the Lord, reasons we should praise the Lord, how we should praise the Lord, who should praise the Lord, and that's really the thrust and the emphasis as the, uh, the book of Psalms now comes to a close. So look with me, Psalm 147 is where we pick up this evening. It opens again with that Hebrew phrase, hallelujah, or praise the Lord, and then he says, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. So here the word of God tells us that there is something that we can know every day, not just on a Wednesday night gathering or a Sunday morning worship time or on a meeting where we get together with a group of Christians in a house where we begin to lift our voices and singing to the Lord, or whether it's driving down the road in our car, or whether it's sitting in our house and turning on, my family loves when I turn on the YouTube videos of worship and incessantly pray it, play it continuously, and they always tell me, play a new song, Dad, and I say, that's my favorite one, though, and it kind of gets worn out, but however we're going about doing it, the Bible says that whenever we're singing praises to our God, we're doing something that's what? It's right there in your, in your Bible. I'm not making it up. It's good, right? It's good that whenever we are singing praises to God, however we're going about doing that, God says that's a good thing. I don't know about you. I, it's nice to know that every day you can at least do something. I did something good today. I did something good today, whether it was driving into work, singing with the radio and lifting praises to the Lord through song, whether it's you know, at our home watching a video or putting on music in the house or times like this when we get together, we can know that whenever we spend time, even as we did, as Gabby led us this evening, singing praises to our God, that we're doing a good thing. We did something good. And it's good because of multiple reasons. Notice, whenever we sing praises to our God, it's good. He says, because that praise to our God is both pleasant and it's beautiful. So it's, it's pleasant and beautiful first and foremost to God because it's very pleasant to God. It's a pleasing thing to God. When we give to him, as the Bible talks about, the sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And again, whether we're doing it collectively with a group of people or individually and privately, it's always pleasant to God, like a, a sweet fragrance, like the uh, incense burning on the altar, lifting up and the fragrance of it. It's like a sweet fragrance to the Lord, and it's pleasant to Him. It's pleasant to God, no matter how we think we sound or whatever. It's pleasant to God. He, he enjoys it. It's a way that He's asked us to honor Him, and it's one of the ways that He gets pleasure 
It ministers to him. We're going to see later on in these verses that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. It's kind of hard to imagine, but God actually finds pleasure with us and in interacting with us. And one of the ways that happens is it's a very pleasant thing to God to hear us lifting our voices, singing to him, trying to honor him, expressing our love to him, telling him the great things about his nature and his works and the ways that we do such as we sing these songs, lifting our voices to him. And it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful thing. It's something that's attractive and beautiful. It's something that that God just finds beautiful to see a humble man, a humble woman who perhaps never would have done what we just did a few minutes ago on a Wednesday evening. But God says, well, that's really beautiful. Look what's happened in his life that he's actually sitting there, standing there singing praise songs to me. How beautiful is that? The life change that, you know, that, that we're a different person, that we actually would be willing to do such, and even more than that, that we even want to do such. And God just finds it beautiful. And not only is it pleasant to God and beautiful to God, truth be told, it's also good to sing praises to our God on our end as well, because it's good for me. And it's good for you to get our eyes off of this world and the frustrations and the hassles and the negativity and all the Ajita and everything that we just deal with every day, and there's just something really good, I know for me anyway, to just not think about that or not and and not complain about this or be but to just praise God. There's something really good. It does something good in our soul. There's something very therapeutic mentally and emotionally and edifying spiritually for our inward person. It's good for us to just give praise to God. It does something wonderful for us. Uh, and it's a very good and beneficial thing, it's, and it's, it's pleasant for us because it's much more pleasant, I find, when I'm doing that than a lot of other things I could be doing with my mouth or with my thoughts. It's a very pleasant thing to me when I'm expressing praise to God, and it's a beautiful thing to look upon something beautiful, to think upon something beautiful in a world full of a lot of ugliness, right? But it's beautiful to be able to think upon the beauty of our God and the beauty of our Savior And verse 2, he then goes on to speak about some of the things that God does, which give us good reason why we should praise the Lord, as these Psalms are calling us to do. He says, for the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Now, they're going to notice all these things that the Lord does. He builds. He gathers. Verse 3, he heals. He binds up wounds. So again, these are reasons that God is worthy of our praise that should prompt us to want to sing praise to him. Verse 2 reminds us, and many believe this psalm was written with the backdrop of the the return of the captivity uh, back from Babylon, regathering there in Jerusalem the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when they went back to reestablish the house of God and rebuild the city where the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire and, and during a time of God bringing back after the Babylonian captivity the outcasts back to their land, how it was the Lord who was rebuilding Jerusalem as he was directing his people who answered that call And again, rebuilding the holy city of Jerusalem, the epicenter from which God has orchestrated all of his spiritual plans and how he gathered together the outcasts of Israel, those who had been scattered here and scattered there. And that happened among God's people because of skin, because of skin, because of sin, there was division and there was separation and people had been pushed in all kinds of different directions. And notice when God's spirit was working, he was regathering 
back the outcasts. He was bringing those who had wandered away and been pushed out, bringing them back together there into the land of Israel once again. No doubt when they went through all that they did there in their captivity and the hardships and living in Babylon, many difficult, painful experiences they went through. Sin always brings pain and hardship. And then on top of that, many of them had been separated from loved ones. There were people who had lost loved ones there in Babylon and weren't able to bury them in the land of Israel. So there were people who were grieving over the heartache of death and loss and separation of loved ones. But look, what does God do? Verse 3, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And that word wounds there specifically doesn't speak of physical wounds. It's in context and the term used speaks of, of inward wounds, of a wounded heart or a wounded soul. And uh, we all know that at time to time in our lives as we journey this very experience. We saw earlier that the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And that's a wonderful thing to know that when someone's brokenhearted, that God is magnetically drawn. Not that God's not always with us, but the Bible tells us the Lord draws close or is close. That is, he, he just kind of draws in a closer way with his presence and his help and his love and his mercy to minister to those who are broken heart. And so when our heart is broken or when someone's heart is broken, God's magnetically drawn to the broken heart. And he draws close and he lets his presence be sensed in a much more deep and profound and powerful way when someone's heart is broken. But here... We get another reference to this reality of when our heart is broken, whether because we're grieving the death of someone that we've lost, that we loved greatly, or maybe our heart's been broken because of a relationship that's fractured or some painful thing that's happened to us or a great disappointment, something's transpired where we've become wounded, our heart's been wounded, or we've been wounded in our soul inwardly. He tells us here that God doesn't just draw near, but God actually ministers Notice healing. He says here, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He begins to bring the, the healing process to a broken heart and a wounded soul within. And what a wonderful reality to know that is one of the ministries of the Lord. And I tell you, that is a ministry that is a supernatural ministry. You know, I can take the Lord as close to the brokenhearted, and I can participate in that to a degree. And to me, that's always been very important that I realize when somebody's brokenhearted, the one thing I know is where the Lord's at is with them. So if I want to be what the, in what the Lord's doing and be together with the Lord, then it's not rocket science for me. Whatever I'm doing, stop, go, go to that person. Just It's a, called a ministry of presence. The, the Lord's drawn to the brokenhearted. When somebody's heart is broken and they're wounded, life goes on pause, and you just go put yourself with that person. That's what you do. You walk with people, you spend time with people, you just, you, you just get near to people who are brokenhearted. It's a ministry of presence. You don't have to have all the answers. You just go, and, and I'll tell you, I can say this over years and years, both pastorally as well as you know, the years I serve as a police chaplain as well. Typically in those times, people are in such turmoil and grief and emotion and heartache when they go through a tragedy or a crisis or, 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 or a loss of a loved one. They don't normally remember much of what anybody says but they remember who was there. That's what they remember. And I know that because I, you know, think of occasions, reflections where, where people years later will say, I remember you, you came. You showed up on my doorstep. I can't believe that. You know, I remember one occasion where somebody 
you know, lost a, a loved one, a pastoral, you know, fr- friend of mine, and I was a few hours away, but when I heard about it, it was even on a, on a, a Wednesday evening. I, I didn't do my Wednesday evening service, and I drove three and a half hours, and I showed up on their doorstep. And he said, what are you doing? It's a Wednesday night. You're a pastor. I said, right. That's why I'm here. <laughs> anybody, anybody can get up in the pulpit and teach a Bible study tonight back at the church, the Lord's close to the brokenhearted, and so I and and they always remembered that, uh, and and the Lord comes close to the brokenhearted, and we can participate in that. But you know the part that's the challenge is He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. And boy, I wish I could do that part. That's the tough part. That you would just love, I would just love to heal people's broken hearts, to bind up their wounds in their souls when they're when somebody's been wounded internally. That's the part, unfortunately, that I have to say that's exclusive to the Lord. That's an exclusive supernatural ministry of His Spirit, that through the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the love of God and the mercy of God, He can bring healing to people's broken hearts, and He can bind up their wounds, the the, the inward wounds of the soul that can happen to a person that they're dealing with. And so, you know, the best thing for us to do, honestly, in those times is just to keep trying to encourage people to connect with the Lord, to realize that I, I can't heal their broken heart, but the Lord can, because he says he can right there. And so if we can just keep connecting them to the Lord and doing what we can, like you know, David and Jonathan just, you know, just you know, putting the, their hand back into the hand of God, and, and, and it says that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God, and that's what he just, David here, just, just take God's hand again. Just take God's hand. He'll, he'll help you through this. And it's one of the most wonderful things that we can do and how wonderful to have that assurance that you know, our hearts may be broken at times. We may become wounded within eternally, but, but how wonderful to know that God can bring healing just like he can to the physical body. God can heal a broken heart. He can bind up the wounds inwardly, emotionally, mentally as people go through these kind of things, that we can take that as a promise. It's a great reason to worship God. Lord, thank you that you've done that in my life from time to time. Lord, thank you that you have been the one to heal my broken heart, to help me with that. We can have a reason to worship him because of that. Verse 4, he says, and he counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. Now, again, today with, you know, technology and, you know, what we have to be able to see, you know, references to discovering new galaxies in this. I mean, can you imagine the number that that really is? Millions upon millions, they believe, from what they know from their vantage point, of stars that exist. And the Bible says he counts, he knows the number of every star, and more than that, he calls them all by names. That's a big name book right there. A book of, you get a book of names when you're going to get a baby, right? And you go through all these names and you try to figure it out. Imagine that, all the stars, God knows the exact number, and he's given everyone a name. I mean, that's just incredible. What does that talk to us about? The vastness of God. How incredibly awesome God must be if he knows every star and he calls them all by name. And not just names like Bob and Frank. I mean, when you, when you read the book of Job, it gives them interesting names like Arturus and Orion. And you're like, why well, you like cool names, like, like incredible names. Again, the incredibleness of our God. That's why he says, verse 5, great is our Lord. That's an understatement. And mighty in power. His understanding is, notice, infinite. Now, that's describing, again, 
the incredibleness of God, but that's also where our challenge comes in. Because the Lord is so great, and he's a God who knows all things, past, present, future. And he says there, his understanding about everything is infinite, limitless. Now, the problem is my understanding and your understanding is what? Finite and limited. So that's where our challenge always comes in. Because we have finite understanding at times we wrestle with things and we don't always understand things. And sometimes I'll tell you, we make the mistake as human beings because as human beings who have limited knowledge on top of that limited perspective, because we're in the temporal realm, we don't have the eternal picture of how everything unfolds and how it all ties together. Uh, And on top of that, then we're fractured, sinful, broken human beings And so here we are with our finite understanding, and we're faulting an infinite God who has infinite understanding. God, why have you done that? Or why would you do that? And and, and we begin to make a mistake to forget God's understanding is, is infinite. Ours is finite. And so that's where faith comes into play. And that's where we have to step back and say, Lord, we know your goodness. We know that you are a righteous God. And your understanding, unlike mine, God, It's infinite, it's limitless, and you know everything, so therefore, I'm gonna, in faith, just trust and worship. And sometimes worshiping and praising God is one of the best ways to process that his understanding is just infinite. And I'll never, there's always gonna be a gap between my understanding and God's understanding. And that's where faith is necessary and to trust God's sovereignty and his character and his nature And just to worship him sometimes is one of the most helpful ways to to grasp that and to just reconcile that rather than wrestle mentally as we can all do from time to time. Verse 6, he says, And the Lord also, notice, lifts up the humble, those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand and authority, and he casts the wicked down to the ground. So again, we see this principle all throughout the word of God, that God opposes the proud or resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, the Bible says he lifts us up. So God always in the business of casting down and resisting pride and arrogance. And when we're stubborn and rebellious and God resists those who do such things, he works not only just to, to hinder, he actually works in opposition to that. But then on the exact opposite, when a human being comes to the place where they humble themselves before the Lord then God allows us to come into the position when we've humbled ourselves, where then he's able to begin to lift us up, to bring us to higher levels, to bring us to better things because our heart is humble and we're yielded to the Lord. That's why it's good to keep as much as possible. Lord, help me to keep in a humble spirit before you. I want you lifting me up, not casting me down. I want the hand of God to be able to lift me up in due time. Verse 70 then says, and sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. So that should characterize our singing, expressing gratitude and thankfulness. Sing praises on the harp, that is the stringed instrument to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds and prepares the rain for the earth, who makes the grass to grow on the mountains. And he gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. So here he speaks of how God takes care of everything. That God's not just a creator, he's a caretaker. And he takes care of everything in creation. He speaks here of, of how the hydraulic system, you know, as with evaporation and, 
you know, condensation and then precipitation as God controls the whole water cycle here with the clouds and prepares the rain and then releases the rain and causes the grass to grow even in the mountains where nobody put down Scott's turf builder or grass seed or anything. God causes the grass to grow there. And, and he causes that grass to grow there. Why? Because there in those mountains, there are some beasts that need food. And so God taking care of all of his creation, causing the grass to grow and the rain to come and all in perfect balance, maintaining the systems of creation that he set into order, making sure to take care of even the beasts to give them their food and even the young ravens that cry out, again, orchestrating all these things to take care as a good caretaker. And again, this is why Jesus talked about, look, if your heavenly father takes care of the the sparrows, and he doesn't, he doesn't even miss when one little sparrow falls. Going, How much more will he take care of you and I, Oh, you of little faith, the Bible says. And again, just to understand that this is a reason we should praise God, we should worship God, because he, he takes care of us. He, he supplies, he's a supplier, whatever we need. He manages to take good care of all of his creation, and you and I even more as those created in his image and likeness. We're the crowning peace of God's creation. He loves human beings even more. He does not delight, verse 10, in the strength of the horse, and he takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. So again, the strength of the horse, the idea there that the horses were used to pull plows or horses were the strength in the battle. If you have a strong thoroughbred horse, you know, that was ancient horsepower, if you would, as, as, as they had horses in their battle. Or on their, and he says, God's not impressed with the multitude of how many horses and how much strength can be accumulated or used from that. And nor notice, is he really impressed with, we might say, manpower either. As he says there, he's not taking pleasure in the legs of a man, again, the implication there is that's where the strength of a man comes from, right? In, in the legs, the quads, that's the strongest muscles and the largest muscles in the body. That's why when we do exercise and we lift things, people say, don't use your back, use your what? Use your legs, lift your legs, because that's, that's where the strength comes from. Typically, you know, when, when athletes have a strong focus on the legs, because that's where the power is generated from. And so again, he's saying, I'm not impressed with your horsepower. I'm not impressed with all the manpower that you can bring. God says, what I take pleasure in, notice, I take pleasure, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and hope in his mercy. That is those who say, Lord, if you don't help, we're done. Doesn't matter how much horsepower or manpower we got, it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And God takes great pleasure in those who know their weakness and who reverence God and want to please God and are dependently hoping in his mercy. Lord, we're dependent upon your mercy here. We can't generate what we need. We're hoping in your mercy to do what we're not able to do for ourselves. So he says, verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. And certainly he did that in the days of Nehemiah as they were rebuilding. He has blessed your children within you. And that's a wonderful thing to see the hand of God upon your children, your next generation as you live for him and serve him. That was a great honor to the Jewish people to see their children blessed. They saw their children as, a, as we saw Psalm 127 as a gift and a reward from the Lord. 
And so he says, you've blessed our children. He makes peace in your borders. God can eliminate our enemies or subdue them and cause things to become peaceful. When they're perhaps out of control, we can bring peace in the midst of conflict. And he fills you with the finest wheat. The idea is, again, not just God supplying, but notice the finest wheat. That is, at times God does what the Bible says exceedingly above and beyond what we ask or think. And that's when he works in us, but at times he, even in supplying, he doesn't just give the wheat, but he says the finest wheat. The idea there is, is blessing and prosperity. Sometimes gives us, God gives us the best. You know, God doesn't just maybe give you a spouse. He goes, man, he gave me the best spouse. That's my testimony anyway. I didn't just get a wife. I got the finest wife, just like the finest wheat, right? And, and to say, wow, Lord, you don't just give me what I need. You gave me the absolute best, but that's how God works, right? Like any good father, they want to give the best they can to their kids. If you can afford the nicer thing, you get your kid the nicer thing, and that's the, the nature of God. He fills us with the, the finest of weed, and to be able to celebrate that aspect of God's nature, and he sends out his command to the earth. Now, this is going to speak of the power of God's word, and his word runs very swiftly. The idea is it goes out with power. When God speaks in swift power, it can accomplish his purposes. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out the hail like morsels. And who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them, the melting uh, off of the snow caps of the mountain ranges. And then he causes the wind to blow and the waters to flow. So again, whether it was creation initially or God controlling creation, God just speaks, right? In the creation account, God would spoke and things would come into existence. The power of God's word to accomplish things, to bring things to pass, that God can promise or God can speak and something can come to pass, even with creation, which he rules over. Notice verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. And he has not dealt thus with any nation, the psalmist says, as for his judgments, they have not known them. And the idea of they, meaning there is the other nations. He's talking about how God, not only his spoken word accomplishes things and brings things to pass, but God through his spoken word gave the law to the nation of Israel. He blessed the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, because he gave them his judgments. And he didn't want them to see that as something that was a, uh, an insignificant thing. God says, do you realize the other nations, they've not known my judgments. You know my word. Do you know how blessed you are? I've given you my judgments and my word. And again, that we would never forget how blessed we are. Look, this evening, you have one of these. You, you, you do realize, even in 2022, there are places where Christianity and Christians are so intensely persecuted that they would die to have a full copy of a Bible. You know, I know individuals over the years of you know, ministry and, and missions work and, and have spoken to, to individuals who, what the church does is, is they literally, you know, we would perhaps be aghast by it. They tear up pages out of their Bible and because they don't want to get caught with the whole Bible, they take pages of the Bible home. And so they take that page home from Sunday to Sunday or meeting to meeting and they read it and digest it and memorize it. And then the next week, like trading cards, they bring them back. Here, you take Colossians 1. Give me Colossians 2. And, and, and they value the word of God 
incredibly, and we never want to underestimate the blessing and the privilege, we have the Word of God, the truths of God, the judgments of God to live out our lives. And that, again, it should be another reason that blessing and privilege, just like Israel had the Mosaic law and the initial giving of the law, and that was a, a privilege, and that should be a reason that we also, as he says here, would want to praise the Lord. Psalm 148, again, begins the same way with the hallelujah Hebrew phrase, praise the Lord, and then he just begins to say, praise the Lord from the heavens. Notice plural, because the Bible speaks of three heavens. The Bible speaks of the atmospheric heavens, what we would call the blue sky, where the birds fly around and where there are clouds. The Bible speaks of the stellar heavens, that is, all of where the stars and moons and planets exist. And then the Bible speaks of the third heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 specifically calls that. Paul talks about being caught up to the third heavens, or what we would call the eternal dimension, where God dwells and in the eternal realm. And that's perhaps why he says, praise the Lord from the heavens. So whether you're in the sky and you're in outer space or you're in eternity, no matter where you're at, God's saying, it's always good to praise the Lord from wherever you may be geographically. Praise him in the heights. He says, praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts, that is, all the spiritual beings. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So notice, no matter what it is, what God created, or where anything or we are at, he says, it is always good to praise the Lord. Again, if I can draw your attention to, you notice there, one, two, three, four, five, six times, it says, praise him. That's the key. We're not just singing songs. We're praising him. That makes what we do at the beginning of meetings when we sing songs or at the end of a meeting when we sing a song responsibly to close out after a Bible study or whatever, that's not just religious routine. It's not just the warm-up for the Bible study. It's, it's not a time to slip in late. It's the time to praise Him. That's what we're doing. When we're singing, we're praising Him. We're not just singing songs. We're not just singing songs for the sake of, wow, that's entertaining. That's a catchy tune. We're really jamming here. No, we're praising Him. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's really supposed to be the heart behind musical worship. You know, I have nothing wrong. He's going to talk about using all types of instruments and being enthusiastic, even getting your dance on when you're praising the Lord. Nothing wrong with passion, but it's also not a show. And it's also not something where we're doing it just for the, but we're doing it and truly understanding the heart behind it. We're praising him. And again, the Holy Spirit multiple times here, praise him, praise him. Praise him. Again, that speaks out with such significance, I think, there. Verse 5, he says, and let them praise the name of the Lord. Again, the name always speaks of one's character. When you hear someone's name, it makes you think of who the person is and what you know about them. So it speaks of the character of God, the nature of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. There's the Genesis account right there. God spoke 
and spoke things into existence. God has the power to do that with his spoken word. He also established them forever. So God created things, and then he set things in order. Again, all the different systems of nature. I mean, think about, as I mentioned earlier, from the hydraulic system, how we get evaporation and then rain and so that whole cycle. But think of all the cycles, all the things that God's established, how they work together, the, you know, all these things that he's established that work the sun rising and setting, keeping the you know, air levels at the right consistency so we can breathe the right amount to get you know, oxygen and, and all these things that God has established and made a decree that don't pass away, that every day the sun comes back up and every day the sun sets and every day we don't worry, oh, is the air. But God, God set all that in order and he controls all that by his power. He didn't just create it. He's the sustainer of all these incredible things that we enjoy on this earth. So he says, verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth. So until you leave from here, you know that's one of the things you're supposed to be doing. We're still on the earth. You great sea creatures. So this fish that swallowed Jonah and everyone else out there, you sea creatures, he's praised. You sea creatures and all the depths, speaking of the great depths of the seas, again, the deepest place. That, that exists in bodies of water on this planet is, is, is upwards to seven miles deep. I mean, imagine that. That's, that's over, over 30,000 feet. You know, sometimes we, as we're flying in a plane and your pilot says, we're ascending to so many. Well, the next time you're at 30,000 feet, consider that's somewhere around the seven-mile range. That's how deep some of the deepest, I believe it was the Mariana Trench is on this earth. Seven miles deep of water, the depths. God created that. God's controlling that. And all the creatures swimming around, it's all under God's power and under God's control. Again, the vastness, the greatness of God when we consider him. He says, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind. Notice all these things, what are they doing? Fulfilling his word. Mountains and hills, fruitful trees and all cedars. Beasts and all cattle, creeping things, even the creepy things. There's a bug, Dad. Come kill this. The creepy things, the flying fowl, all the birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth. So notice, kings and princes, the most prominent, powerful people, right, with great authority, those who are venerated and kings and princes, as well as, notice, just common peoples, just everyday people like you and I, we all should be praising the Lord. God's not impressed if someone's a king, and, and God is not unimpressed if someone is a lowly person or just a people that know, but God knows because God cares about every person, and God wants all, no matter what the status of life, to be praising him. Notice verse 12, both young men and maidens, or young maidens. So again, God loves to see, notice, I take note of that, young men. I like that. Young men. Guys, I love young men and young women, maidens, praising the Lord. Something beautiful to see young men and young women who are praising the Lord, as well as, you don't want to not feel included, old men and old women and children praising the Lord. Oh, that's just for the adult. No, children, praising the Lord. 
God finds pleasure in that. It matters to him. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Boy, that's good to remember because we live in a time where it seems that a lot more the names of Christians and ministers and ministries are getting exalted. His name, the name of Jesus, that's what we should know, the name of Jesus. He, he should be the one being exalted, the one who's honored. His glory is above all the earth and above heaven, and he is exalted, the horn. The idea is there is the, the horn was the, the reference to the power or the strength. He has lifted up the strength of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people, notice, who are near to him. The idea is near in the sense of that God draws near in his concern over them, praise the Lord. Psalm 149, again, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. We've seen that phrase multiple times in our study through Psalms, to sing to the Lord a new song. And we've mentioned before, that could be a new song in the sense of, hey, that's a song we've never sung before. That's a, that's a new song. Somebody, the Lord, there was a fresh work of God in somebody's heart, and those gifted with that ability spiritually, they, they, they write a new song. They put the melody in the music, and they bring out a new worship song. And to use a new song that comes out of a fresh expression or work of God in someone's heart, it's a good thing. It's a good thing once in a while to sing a song that we've never sung before, and we really have to pay attention to the words and think about the words and realize, well, this is, and then sometimes those new songs become the ones where it's, man, that's my new jam. That's my new, I like that new song. Other ones we may not, but, but sometimes those new songs are, are wonderful and they keep things fresh for us. But sometimes singing to the Lord a new song may not necessarily be a song that's new. It may just have new meaning to us, right? And that's the idea there, singing to the Lord a new song. It, literally, the Hebrew is a fresh expression, a fresh expression. And sometimes, I know I've experienced, I'm sure you have as well, I can sing a song that I've been singing for years, but because of what I just went through or what I'm currently going through, I sing that song, and it has a whole new sense of personal meaning to me. And as you're singing it, it is a fresh expression from your heart because you're going, man, these lyrics, boy, this, this is it right now. This is really what I've just experienced or what I'm going through. Or, and there's that fresh expression as you're singing in worship because you're having fresh experiences with God. And you're singing a new song, therefore, and a fresh expression of praise. And his praise, notice, where do we praise the Lord? One of the places the Bible says, in the assembly of the saints. Hebrews 10 says that we're not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves. That, in, that God wants his people to assemble. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul's giving instructions about communion, and he keeps making a constant repetitious phrase there, when you come together, he's writing to the church, when you come together, when you come together, you kind of get the idea that the Holy Spirit is saying that Christians are supposed to do what? Come together. Nothing wrong with singing to the Lord at home or singing to the Lord in your car, but part of the biblical experience of Christianity is the body of Christ. And bodies aren't supposed to be disconnected members they're supposed to both receive and supply to the remaining part of the body. It's a dual function, receiving and giving. Every part has a function, but every part is also dependent upon what the rest of the body supplies to it. 
and we're the body of Christ. And so we are supposed to assemble. We're supposed to come together to allow the ministry of God's Spirit to work among us. The Bible tells us that he manifests his presence in the, the gathering of his people. And here, we're to praise the Lord in the assembly of the saints. It's one of the things we're supposed to do, to be praising the Lord when we assemble. One of the characterizing things, but we're supposed to assemble to do that. Let Israel, he says, verse 2, rejoice in their maker, that God is their creator. And let the children of Zion, of another name again for Jerusalem, let them be joyful in their king. So we should celebrate that God's our creator, he's our maker. And we should also celebrate he's our ruler and that he's our king and he has great authority. And let them praise his name with the dance. Uh Uh-oh, where are we going with that? Well, understand, in the Hebrew culture, they're incredibly expressive people. And much of the Middle East, honestly, to a much greater degree, even compared to the Western civilization, are a very expressive people. Remember, it tells us that when when Miriam and and the other maidens were celebrating God's power, it says that with the timbrel and the dance, they were worshiping and dancing and praising the Lord through dance. David, remember, was dancing before the Lord, and he was criticized for doing so, but David was just in this very enthusiastic, expressive way, praising the Lord with a dance. And understand, this is not talking about what we think of when we think of dance, going to the disco club, or getting your jiggy on, or whatever the newest you know, dance move is here. I mean, the, the Word of God says, let them praise His name with the dance. This is talking about truly dancing in an expressive way that, that, again, as many of the Hebrews would, it was very common to them, for the Lord and to the Lord. It wasn't dancing to, to a cool tune and having a good time socially. You know, you're free to disagree and have your own conviction on the whole dancing thing. You know, are Christians supposed to dance? Is that right, wrong? Can we dance if we go to a wedding? Is it okay to dance? Look, I stick with the same adage that's been around for centuries. Can Christians dance? Some can. Some can't. Or better said, some can, some probably shouldn't, right? If you, unless you really want to humble yourself before the Lord. So let them praise his name. I just had to hear his passion. You'll notice this is just about enthusiasm, worshiping God with enthusiasm. And I don't know, but I, you know, my very first experience, I was the first person in my family to get saved. My friend who led me to Christ went to a very charismatic Pentecostal church. That was the first thing I ever experience with church. So I, to this day still, when the music's going, I, I, I try and contain myself to not get it. Just there's something about the power of music, right? And again, we, we don't want to be distracting, and that's not the point here. And, you know, interpretive dance and you're, you're right center here. Amazing how you're the only one that wants to dance and everybody else in the room. That's not something, obviously, that's healthy. But the idea is just just experiencing worship of God and just in this beautiful way, they often would do these dances under the Lord just to express praise to him, not recreationally, but worshipfully. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel. That would be what we might refer to today as like a tambourine. And with the harp, any kind of stringed instrument. For the Lord takes pleasure, there it is, in his people. And he will beautify the humble with salvation. Now, isn't that amazing to think about that the Lord takes pleasure in his people? That as God sees his people worshiping and praising him, he takes great pleasure in that. And what a wonderful thing to know that you and I can bring pleasure 
to the Lord. When you love someone, that's what you should want to do, right? When you love someone, you want to please them. You want to bring pleasure to them. And one of the ways we can bring pleasure to God is when we worship him, when we praise him and sing praise to his name and use music and instruments. This is a way that the Lord takes pleasure among his people as he sees that. And he will beautify. Notice he, he makes lives beautiful that are humble and that are receptive to his salvation. Again, boy, is that not true? Think of I know my life was pretty ugly. But to think that God can take our ugly, nasty past and, and who we are, and God, if we humble ourselves before him and we receive his salvation, he can beautify a life and make a life beautiful. Taking beauty from ashes, the Bible says he's able to do that. What a wonderful thing God can do to make lives beautiful. Let the saints, therefore, be joyful in glory. Again, just celebration, enthusiasm, joyful. And let them sing aloud on their beds. Now, notice that. Isn't that interesting? Sing aloud on their beds. And again, there's that personal time of praising the Lord through song on their beds. Now, is that before one drifts off to sleep? I don't know if you're single, that might work. If you're married, it may not be the best of idea. You may quench the spirit of your spouse if they're trying to sleep and you're trying to sing a worship song. But I would say one of the places where I think that could become very fitting is on the sickbed, on the deathbed. And I have been, I know numerous times with my calling and pastoral ministry, and many of you as well, maybe with loved ones and and to see someone on their sickbed or even to see someone on their deathbed and to see them still with what strength they want to worship the Lord and just singing a worship song to the Lord and just, you know, in the midst of that, how beautiful to, to be there. Maybe someone's limited to a sickbed and to be able to just sing praise songs. Though the outward man is fading away, the inward person being renewed day by day and able just to worship the Lord through that sickness, through the bed of illness, or worshiping the Lord on their deathbed, and just transitioning right out of that body and into the glory of the Lord, and beginning to worship firsthand in his presence. He says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand. So now he's going to speak here in a sense of of doing battle, and this is in a literal sense, no doubt, the nation of Israel was used many a times as God's instrument to deal with Canaanite and pagan people who were doing gross and horrific things, and God would at times need to bring judgment upon them. Notice what he says in verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and nobles with fetters of iron. The picture there is capturing prisoners of war, to execute on them the written judgment, this honor have all his saints. Now, if you read passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7 and other places and things we saw quite a ways back in our study in the Old Testament, there were times when God would use the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to bring about judicial action against some of the Canaanite nations because of the gross and horrific and evil things that they were doing. And God would use them in that sense in a military conflict in the midst of wars to do such in the midst of that. And so these verses come to us in the context of that as that's a way God would use the nation of Israel. Certainly from a new covenant perspective, that's not how God uses the church. 
And let me just say, these are some of a few verses that have been twisted and manipulated during the time of the Crusades and some other really unfortunate things that happened under the banner of the church and Christianity. And this is something God did indeed do through the nation of Israel as a people under the Old Testament and the covenant of the Old Testament. And I think we need to be very careful. Are we called to do battle? Yes. How? Spiritually. We're called to do spiritual battle. Not literal battle for the sake of the kingdom of God, but spiritual battle. And there are enemies to stand up against and to, to understand. This is the honor we have as the Lord's people to not only be worshipers, but also simultaneously to be, in a sense, warriors. The Bible speaks in the New Testament about being a soldier for Christ, right? And what are our weapons in the spiritual warfare? Well, two of them are mentioned here. The New Testament, Ephesians 6 and other places, speaks of those things as well. But Lotus, he says, part of our weapons in spiritual warfare is the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hand. Now, for the nation of Israel, they did both sing the praises of God and literally carry a sword in their hand to fight against their enemies. The two-edged sword was a literal sense for them. And at times, they were worshiping and being warriors at the same time, right? They would march around Jericho worshiping God, but then they actually went in and, and did real warfare. For you and I, we have the same calling in a spiritual sense. One of our greatest weapons in spiritual warfare, right there, verse 6, is the high praises of God in our mouth, worship. You want to drive back the enemy? You want to drive back the lying voice of the devil and, 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 and put down spiritual warfare? Let the high praises of God be in your mouth. You begin to worship and draw near to God, and as he draws nearest to you, submit to God, resist the devil, and the Bible says, and he'll flee from you. It's one of the greatest weapons. Worship is a powerful weapon against the devil, as well as, he says, a two-edged sword, and we know what that speaks to us from a New Testament perspective, right? Hebrews chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 6, that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, the sword of the Spirit that we use to fight against the lies and the attacks of the devil. So again, the word of God and worship of God, we're both worshipers and warriors to overcome. Psalm 150, he says, praise the Lord. And look, this is like one man said, the Niagara Falls of praise. I think it's a good statement, a great way to finish the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. So notice, again, we saw in our last psalm, sing his praise in the assembly of his saints. Where did the saints assemble? Well, even when the tabernacle existed, when the temple existed, today we gather together at times in corporate places like this in buildings, and we call it the corporate gathering place where God's people come together to worship the sanctuary, a, a place that has been set apart, sanctified, a sanctuary, a, a place that's been set apart for God's people to gather, to focus on the Lord, to honor the Lord, a sanctuary, a refuge. We get away from the world, and we have a safe sanctuary to focus on God and enjoy connecting with God. And notice he says we should be praising God in his sanctuary. It's one of the main things we should be doing in the sanctuary is in praising God. But again, can I go back to what I said earlier too? Because from time to time, believers struggle with saying, I can praise God, but I don't need to be in the sanctuary. I can just use YouTube now. That's my sanctuary, my couch. And I watch the video and I sing the songs 
And I don't know about you, I did that for a short while as well. It was weird kind of watching myself and doing church with my family after we'd pre-record services during the whole, you know, COVID thing when we were all kind of locked away there for a while. And it was, but it just, it wasn't the same. It just wasn't. There's a dynamic spiritually that's missing there because it is a dynamic biblically that God does intend for the life of the Spirit of God and what happens when we come together and we praise God in his sanctuary with his people, among the people, as living stones where God's presence is manifest among what this is now, the temple of the Lord, his people. And so we're called to praise God in his sanctuary to praise him, why? Verse 2, for his mighty acts. And boy, there are plenty of those to read in the Old Testament, scripturally. And as we talked about last study on Wednesday night together, the mighty acts he's done literally in our lives. And to remember and reflect and praise him for his mighty acts. And also, verse 2, not just for the power of God and what he does, but just for who he is in his person, to praise him according to his excellent greatness. For that, I would write there, right in your margin, Psalm 145. That was all about the greatness of God. Remember, we looked at that last time. He says, verse 3, and praise him now with the sound of the trumpet. That's the shofar, the, the ram's horn. That's actually what's up here on this table here to my left. The Hebrews would use that as they would blast the shofar horn to direct for battle or to, to, to give different directions among the people. Praise him with the sound of the shofar, with the lute, with the harp, Praise him with the timbrel or the tambourine, as we would know today, and the dance. Again, praising, notice, praising him with the dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and the flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Oh, their drums are too loud. Sorry, that was God's fault. Praise him with the loud cymbals. Praise him with the clashing cymbals. Again, what's God saying? I want all types of expressions of praise. God says, I want many voices, and God says, and, and I like any instrument, as long as it's used well and it's, it's used for me. And so God here, again, implying this idea of using instruments and melodies and so, just all these things being used to praise the Lord. Verse 6, the conclusion of our study in Psalms, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So again, everything that has breath. You're sitting here tonight. You still have breath? <laughs> and what does Acts 17 say? God gives to all life, breath, and all things. Do you know why you still have breath in your lungs right now at this time of night on this one? Because God's still giving you breath until our last breath. But as long as we still have breath, he says, we should use that breath given from God to praise the Lord. Shall we do that? Let's stand together.